Hello, beautiful people. You are listening to the Communal Table Podcast, part of Food & Wine Pro. I'm your host, Kat Kinsman, Senior Editor at Food & Wine. It is hard to open a restaurant, and it is indescribably stressful to have to open your restaurant four separate times for reasons like earthquake, local government corruption, or a pandemic that are out of your control. But Norma Lismond and Saqib Kaval, they believe in the vision of Masala Imaiz, their Mexico City restaurant and co-op, so fiercely that they keep on working. They joined Communal Table for a fascinating conversation about recipes as documentation of a culture, the impact of white supremacy on food media, the might of masa, and their blueprint for a restaurant culture that is actually built for the health of the workers. I am so excited to be talking with both of you today. Um, it is not <laughs> the initial reason that I was hoping to get to sit down uh, with the two of you, but let's uh, rip the Band-Aid off and talk about uh, what happened recently. And uh, just to recap for folks, uh, Food Line, we screwed up. We uh, included a uh, an inappropriate garnish in a Moliverde recipe that uh, these wonderful people have were you know trusted us with in the magazine and added hot sauce and limes in the styling of it, which was done without their consultation and it was wrong. And they very, very appropriately called us on it and it uh, ended up in a dialogue. So I wanted once again fully apologize uh, to both of you and uh, yeah, let's talk about it. <laughs> So I'm uh, Saqib and uh, Norma. We're from Masale Maiz in Mexico City. We had, you know, got approached by Food and Wine to submit this recipe as part of their January issue, uh, I think called Good to the Last Stop. Um, and um, and this idea of like uh, submitting a comfort recipe, a comfortish recipe. And Norma, oh, um, yeah, Norma shared her the recipe that's kind of like that's based on a pipian that she's been working on for years and it kind of like you know sent out into the world we didn't think about it again until we saw someone post a picture of it which was really cool to see like oh someone's cooking our food and then we see these uh uh like red splotches on the on the mole and like how strange yeah, the first time was how strange. It was somebody reposting the recipe on Instagram, but I thought it was a personal choice, so didn't think about it too much until a few days later. Uh, my, my aunt, Shazia, hi, Shazia, uh, sent us a picture because, you know, like family, she's super excited. She sees us in print, um, and we see that the recipe, the way it was published in the magazine, had hot sauce like a red hot sauce like almost looks like frank's red hot which i love frank's red hot but doesn't go uh and then and then it got written into the recipe as well too to to finish the dish with hot sauce and lime wedges yeah um for context let's well let's mention where you are calling into the podcast from and why that is a particular uh egregious thing yeah uh we're you know I'm from California. We met in California, uh, but Norma's from here in Mexico City. She's from Texcoco. Uh, our restaurant, Masale Maiz, is in Mexico City, um, and we've been open for three years. Three years now, yeah. 
and uh, you know it and it's something that i've been following very very closely um because i you know it's like you've been following your work since uh we, we met several years ago at a conference in ireland and uh ended up following uh work through people's kitchen collective in uh in oakland and then to see you uh both open this incredible you know groundbreaking groundbreaking and beautiful spot in Mexico City that I know sort of all of my friends who have become, you know, American, like expats uh, to Mexico are absolutely obsessed with this place. And the thing that you do that is so, so special there is you really honor these recipes and the labor of them. And that was sort of part of the recipe that had been in the magazine. It's so gorgeously labor intensive. And that is you know, sort of part and parcel of why this is such a you know, such a, a deeply special thing. And Norma, I know that you, you've taught classes on Malay. That's right. I used to teach uh, at 18 Reasons in San Francisco, this Mole Monday class. Mole is one of my favorite things to cook because it's something that requires love. It's something that requires attention. And it's something that makes you stop. And a time where, you know, life takes over, you're so busy, doing a million things, mole is something that makes you stop and makes you like put attention and makes you be present, which I feel like there are just a few things in life that can do that. Um, so this particular recipe has already been uh, culturally adapted to the U.S. audience. For example, using uh, duck fat instead of lard, and it's already been tweaked so that the end result is beautiful and delicious. And it's not the most complicated mole. It's something that you can do at home. So the addition of the garnishes um, bring up a lot of uh, questions uh, for us. And not, not, not just questions, but conversations um, that have been happening for a long time in food media. And mm -hmm. the questions is, are such as, like, who gets to decide where, what our food looks like, right? Um, I understand that this was a decision that was made last minute in the when they were taking the photographs and feeling that it needed color. Mm -hmm. So it's like as as food media and as food professionals on our side too, we, we need to have these conversations more openly of you know what is beautiful food beautiful food. Yes. Like what is my responsibility for food media when dealing with um a different culture's recipe. Um, what is uh, the responsibility when it comes to authorship? You know, because the recipe changed completely with the addition to that. And then the other topic that is really important is that Mexican food has been bastardized, bastardized for so many years um, in the U.S. It has been stereotyped as a food that you always put hot sauce and lime on. Mm -hmm. And here is a recipe that it's beautiful, that it stems from a recipe that it's over 300 years old. Mm -hmm. And we're putting lime and hot sauce on mm -hmm. it. You know, I, I can see that would be so hurtful. Um, because uh, you, you were you, you both of you were kind enough to you know sit down with our our food editor um, Mary Frances Heck and 
you know, and sort of talk through, uh, you know, the, the pain of this moment and do that emotional labor on it. But you, you were talking about these as living documentation of, of culture and why that is, is so important. And I want, I would, I would love to, you know, touch some on why food is, you know, it is history. It is, it is culture. It is so often an oral tradition and the documentation in sort of big glossy food magazines is filtered through a lens of, of gatekeepers and the and voices aren't always heard in, in, in that. And uh, it, it's, would you, would you please talk about, you know, the, why these recipes are so Im- important and um, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Mole is a great example of um, if you see it as a document and if you research uh, Mole and Mole's history, it could tell you a lot of the history of Mexico through Mole and through the ingredients that have been added and taken off through the years, you see the um, influence of different cultures in Mexico. This mole stems from a pipian mm-hmm. or pepian, both um, both are correct. And this was or is a, a pre-Hispanic preparation. Then um, after the Spaniards and came to Mexico, you start seeing different um, ingredients added to different moles, different spices coming into the moles. And in that sense, you can start seeing the points of um, encounter with different cultures and how these cultures have influenced what we know today as Mexican gastronomy. For us um, at Masala y Maiz, we use the term mestizaje, which doesn't exist in uh, in English, and we keep using it in in Spanish uh, for a lack of better word. And mestizaje is basically what happens when different cultures meet, um, and different cultures blend, and from that comes a new style of cooking, of dressing. Um, of, of, of basically creating like a, a type of third culture. Um, and it can happen in a lot of ways, this type of mestizaje that can be done through, I mean, well, the way we're looking at it and the way we're using it is kind of looking at this horizontal blending of cultures because we're specifically looking at the mestizaje between South Asian and, and Mexican communities and ingredients, uh, but also the way we, we use mestizaje kind of as a counterpoint to fusion, right? So for us, fusion is this, um, is how a lot of uh, people want to describe our food, this like mm-hmm. Indo-Mexa cuisine that we create uh, or that we research. And for us, fusion is kind of inherent, uh, inherently a white supremacist ideal, right? I think we see it a lot in, in the US and in, in European food where it's generally like um so it's like a Eurocentric cuisine mixed with the other. And the other is generally um from the global south and oftentimes like some type of Asian food. I don't know why that is, but generally like yeah. it's 
the norm mixed with the exotic and the norm is always something eurocentric or something white generally like this fusion you know craze in the 90s was like white chefs who i feel like went you know backpacking or when found themselves in thailand or whatever and wanted to open their own like money-making scheme um and fusion for me always feels like this kind of capitalist gimmick of trying to sell a concept and take take credit for something that has already existed that for some reason like sorry to call out names but like jean george you know i, I yeah. see this coming into play there and then he uh, you know ends up getting all the credit for it because of the supremacy. And, and for us, uh, mestizaje, or the way we are using the word mestizaje, it happens naturally. We're not uh, the first ones to be cooking uh, Mexican and Indian food together. Yeah, we make a big point to say that. Of like, this is not, what we're doing isn't new, right? We're, one, we're doing uh, this research, but, and we're also like uh, going through our own family memories and family histories. We're looking at foodways, but we're also looking at this legacy of Mexican Indian communities that have existed, uh, or Mexican South Asian, I should say. Uh, there's this deep history in the Central Valley of South Asian and Mexican farm workers uh, building like this third culture there. Uh, that for me is a very much a mestizaje culture. Um, but this, like this, these communities have existed around the world before. And with the work that we do, and going back to your question of using um, recipes as documentations of these moments in history, right? Um, so I always think about the fact that Sakibis in Mexico cooking the recipes of his family, but using Mexican chiles, Mexican ingredients uh, that we couldn't find anywhere else. And that to us makes it mestiza and that to our food, that to us makes our food mestiza. And I think there's, sorry, go ahead. And that to us also you know, puts us in a time and place. And I think that we can do that with food. We can do that with food around the world and use it as research documents to know what happened, to know the stories of the people rather than the stories that were told in books. Yeah. The way we look at recipes is, is and I think this is how we described it to Mary Frances Heck, and it's kind of how we talk about it a lot is, we look at recipes as kind of primary source documents. So we look at how they change over generations and looking at the addition or subtraction of ingredients, changes in technique can tell you a lot about what that community has gone through when that uh, recipe was changed or when it was passed down. So when the recipes passed down from generation to generation, you're also passing down kind of the lived experience of that, of that community, of that people. What makes it hard, and in the case of this mole, Verde recipe, right? Does you take a uh, that was published is um, a recipe that has this kind of this you know it's a prestige recipe. It's very very intensive. It carries a lot of cultural weight and significance and a lot of history with it. And the idea of sharing it with a broader audience and a U.S. based audience that doesn't have experience or exposure to this level of finesse and breadth of Mexican gastronomy um, was the the recipe was removed from its cultural context, right? By the addition of this hot sauce and lime, because it plays into this understanding in the U.S., this norm of Mexican gastronomy always being this 
combination of uh, tortillas, ground meat, uh, sour cream, shredded lettuce. lettuce, yeah, iceberg lettuce, chopped tomatoes, hot sauce, and lime. Just the very uh, fast food version of it. Right. Yeah, and it's um, and that's pretty fucked up, right? Like this idea <laughs> that we can take something that has so much history, and then and kind of rob it of that in its moment to shine. And in addition to that, um, what we have a, as like obviously as cooks, we can't cook for every single person, but the recipes become our voice and what we share and our point of view. You know, and there's something that I am trying to say with this beautiful, delicate recipe, and it is to convey my point of view. And my point of view is <laughs> definitely not adding hot sauce every <laughs> time. <laughs> and, and this idea, and it's, I think, really important that we talk about this because it's this idea of now there's a recipe that conveys something really different to the masses or to everyone that has that recipe in print. And on one hand, I'm super embarrassed. And on the other one, I'm really worried because we keep uh, perpetrating an idea that it's not... Uh, of, of Mexican gastronomy. Yeah, that it's not accurate. Mm -hmm. But... This brings up a really interesting point, too, of who gets, um, you know, to decide how we cook. And I think uh, the uh, for us seeing how people have approached the article and the views, because we exist in two countries at the same time, we exist in the U.S., because... We, I lived there for 18 years. I learned how to cook in the Bay Area. A lot of what influences me on how to do things, it's stem in the, in the Bay Area. My community of cooks is there. Um, that's where we both met. Yet we are existing in Mexico. Yet we are also part of this different reality. And and it's, it's that... The way that the article and the conversation is going, it's a little different in, in both countries. Um, in Mexico, people are saying, like some people, we've had some counter uh, opinions of, of asking like, well, don't you think that mole needs to evolve? Don't you think we need to put different things in mole? Don't you think... You know, and then this brings up the question of authorship, like looking at, at this um, this particular thing that happened <laughs> in yeah. terms of authorship. But then it's like the larger question of how does culture change? Who gets to change the culture? Who gets to say what goes in a in a recipe? And and it starts a very uh, a larger and and very interesting conversation. It's such an interesting thing to me because, you know, we were talking about the evolution of these restaurants, of recipes, sorry, and, and authorship of it. And we are in a unique place in, uh, in history right now because of physical separation. Of, of people and because we are connected, we're, you know, operating in isolation, 
and we are connecting in different ways than we ever have sort of as a you know, humanity before because so much of it is visually uh, driven. It's on Instagram. It's uh, you know via these various other you know social uh, social media. And I realize, and here's the, you know the problem comes into it is you know when a big publication does something, you know we sort of come into it with the you know the sort of big uh, you know authority. But this is the way particular thing and. You know, obviously, that doesn't always end up being you know the the right thing. Um, but I'm I'm really interested to hear how you feel that you know you're talking about these cultures coming together, and obviously they're coming together in your personal home and in in your restaurants. But as you know, sort of as a society, as we're operating in this isolation, how are these? Do you feel like this moment is going to be reflected? in um you know in a particular way like people 100 years in the future are going to say like oh this you know this particular recipe evolved this way because of the pandemic separation in 2020 and now 2021 i'm just i'm really curious about where these interactions are playing out and kind of if you feel like social media has anything to do with this i definitely think that i mean i think i feel two things so social media i feel like makes us is is making us latch on to food trends in a very different way right now, um, sure. especially during the pandemic, because people have the time and they're all we have, like our only human connection right now is through our phones. Um, so people are like really following trends and food discourse. I mean, people who I'd say who are interested in, in food and recipes and cooking. Mm-hmm. I feel like a hundred years from now, people there, it'll be easy to look back and say, holy shit, uh, 2020 was about sourdough and uh, <laughs> banana bread. And like, I think pandemic recipes will be very clear. Like what right. people's command of certain recipes changed a lot. Um, and people's visual attachment to certain dishes changed a lot too, right? This Monday, for example, like it was, it's really cool to see how this conversation is played out on social media right now, because I feel like people have more time and engagement to yeah have this conversation publicly and reflect on it and engage with the recipe in a different way, because this type of like long dish is not, you know, this long recipe is not a weeknight quick meal, but right now in the pandemic time doesn't exist. And every day is a weekday or a weekend, or it does, I mean, it doesn't matter. Everything's just kind of flowed together. So it's a great time to make a recipe that's going to take a few days and cause you to focus and be really engaged in the kitchen with this like labor of love. Mm-hmm. And we have better access to ingredients than we ever had before because right. and mail away for these things. Yeah. Yeah, but I also think, I mean, like we definitely have been exposed to more recipes, but at the same time, there is still, um, how, how do I word this? There is still a strong uh, voice in the food media that prevails. For example, in Mexico, why, and in the world, why did we choose sourdough as opposed to nixtamalization? You know, why didn't, if we had the time, why didn't we put it into learning how to make perfect, beautiful tortillas and we went with the white bread, you know? So that to me, like, yes, there's this moment, but there's still a very strong dominance in what cultures get to play right. the the biggest role in media. And and that is part of this whole conversation that we 
we are having right yeah. now. You know, because with the with the mole here, like there were the person, the people who are the Mexicans who are contesting us and saying like, hey, we have the right to put whatever we want in our mole, mm -hmm. right? But then there are the other Mexicans who are like, no, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> don't, don't put that in my mole. Like, you know, that it's really personal, that it's really beautiful. And mole verde, it's such a feminine, delicate, old, uh, Mole, I, I think it's it, to me. It's one of the sexiest um, sauces there are in yeah. the world. And and to be clear, like this is not about saying don't put stuff on your mole or don't change your mole however you want in whole at your house or eat it right. eat it however you want. It was the question is simply authorship and cultural control. And I think Kat, what you were saying about like we have access to more ingredients than ever before. We have access to more food recipes than ever before, but we have less access to culture right now, right? We yeah. have less access to people of different cultures. So mm -hmm. the only way to have this conversation is, and the only way people are able to engage with this is, is online and well, through social media. <laughs> I was going to say, well, tell that to all the Americans that are living now in Oaxaca and who escaped the pandemic in the U.S. and are in Mexico without masks throwing events. Yes. Oh, God. I, I, will, I will note that is happening here, too. And I have very, very strong feelings about this folks who listen to this podcast know that i lost my mother to covid so i have really oh, strong sorry. feelings about that uh, but you know the the thing is because you were you know so generous with you know not just the labor of this recipe but the emotional labor after you know after it led to so for folks who i, I probably should have mentioned this up top so we ended up addressing this in uh, a, a form on our uh, on our site where we talked about what happened, and then had an explanation of, of from from Norma and Sakiba about like why you know this was a problem. And we talked about what we were doing to address this. We we uh, you know changed the recipe online, reshot the photos, and then it made us really put our heads together and come up with a plan for moving forward, which we're calling the four C's of collaboration, consent, credit, and context. So, you know, I, I just, I want to express my tremendous gratitude to uh, both of you for, you know, doing that labor and for, you know, kicking off this internal conversation, which was, you know, way overdue. And, and I think a lot of this happens as you were talking about with the, you know, the bringing things out of cultural context is, you know, this is playing out in all different ways because absent the humanity of one another, I think people get meaner online and people get more separated and it's easy to sort of assume various things. And, you know, at the heart of what I know both of you do has always been taking care of the humanity of the people involved in your food production. And this dates back to the work that you were doing in the Bay Area. And I, I want to... Um, I want to give people sort of the context of where you two were cooking before and how you met and what your missions were like in the Bay Area, because I think it's such you know, powerful work. Yeah. How do you crazy kids eat? So, uh, yeah, we met in, in, in the Bay in California. Um, I have a project there uh, called People's Kitchen Collective. Um, yeah, we do. Because, well, it's brilliant. Yeah. Thank you. Um, it's a community-based restaurant project. It's something kind of between um, 
it's like the, at the intersection of food, art, and social justice. So it's kind of imagining what a decolonized restaurant would look like, what a uh, food project that's by and for immigrants and people of color um, looks like, what a it, it kind of looking at food as as a also as a public art practice. Okay. Um, Define for people quickly what decolonized means in in your view. In in my view, I mean. It's specifically in the case of restaurants, right? Uh, and in the case of People's Kitchen Collective and a little bit of the work that we do with Masale Maiz is um, looking at this, you know, our, our industry is, is fucked. It's been fucked for <laughs> since, since inception. Um, it was designed off of, a, you know, replicating this kind of French military model. Uh, and it's, it ties in a lot of models of uh, indentured labor, of Jim Crow era, uh, labor politics and practices, ideas of service. Um, we talk in the industry a lot about hospitality, but we're always talking about it from a very Eurocentric way. Mm -hmm. A lot of the problematic things in our industry, I feel like, tie back to this deification and replication of systems of patriarchy, of sexism, of unequal labor, of racism, and class, and, and general like systems of misogyny. Um, so when we're looking to decolonize a restaurant and, and create like a decolonized food space, we're looking at our, how do we replicate more holistic models, more community-based models. And, and a really good example of it is what it means to be in service as opposed to being uh, like uh, serving, right? Yes. Um, to think hospitality more as like a, as a cultural component to think about labor practices in, uh, in kitchens, the way we work more as a collective process, more horizontal, less top down and to kind of to deconstruct this idea of the angry screaming chef, the uh, restaurant uh, that demands everything from you, that wears you down, that like you have to, you know, give it your all until you break. And that's the only way to get ahead. Yeah. Um, it's a lot of like small changes that we make to the way we operate to create a larger impact. Yeah, because there there really is that that fetishizing of abuse and seeing it as a badge of honor. And I know that that has been a very sort of Eurocentric and American way that kitchens are run. Um, in in Mexico, is there has that been part of restaurant culture? Same. same. It is the same. It's also like. You know, we're victims of a system, of a large system that it's implemented by these uh, uh, organizations like Michelin and the Pellegrino 50 Best that promote this type of, or that allowed for this type of behavior to happen in restaurants. Yeah. Where you need, I mean, the there's restaurants in Mexico City, like the fancy restaurants that have armies of free labor. Why? Mm -hmm. Because it's, it's the privilege to work for free. Yeah. <laughs> it's your privilege it's so to work for free in this restaurant. And that it's not okay, you know? And and I feel like a lot of of how we operate has been institutionalized for one and two this it's become aspirational yeah. it's become the things that that new young cooks aspire to and that they there is this belief that unless you do that you are not going to become a great chef or you are yeah. not going to uh 
get to where you want to be in your career. Yeah, and and specifically, the, I think that do that is do that in the European model, right? Do that in the European way. Like that, it's it. I mean, we know why this is the case, but it's just so it's such garbage that the global standard for good food is still European technique, is still European uh, uh, labor practices, and and still like we're still following this broken French model. Like to me, going back to Mole, it's really interesting to look at Moles today in Mexico City. And you can do like a very, I think you could do very interesting research, but a lot of the Moles that are cooked in these fancy restaurants, they look more like a French sauce that uh, traditional Mole, where the sauce is broken from the fat and you have this... Uh, two beautiful like contrast of the we call it the mirrors that the the fat um, makes on top of the mole and now they become this like super smooth homogenized uh it's like super emulsified emulsified sauce that you just like a mole kind of thing yeah exactly with no like so it's interesting, you know, it's yeah. interesting because how all of that technique has influenced. We have, we have these conversations at work too, where, you know, like our cooks are like, okay, uh, what about technique? And we're like, what about technique? What about the technique that you're learning now? For example, when they're learning to ferment. Uh, oh, to make like our achars or to make the dosa, dosa. like the, the every time we have a ferment like dosa or utapam, it takes the whole team about a month and a half to get it right and just to understand the like the little details and the intricacies and how you know like a quarter or less than a quarter cup of water could change completely everything yeah. or like a pinch of salt extra but because it's not french they don't see it as, <laughs> as technique. technique they're like no we're just making this but if it was a fucking bechamel they're like oh technique. but it's like changing uh the but but it's doing the work to put words into something you yeah. know like nixamalizing exactly. i think something that we are very proud in mexico of and like People are really pushing forward. It's learning how to nixtamalize, learning how to make tortillas, tamales, but like from scratch, not buying your masa yeah. and understanding this ancient preparation of cooking uh, corn with water and limestone to get to the, uh, to the end result. And that is really beautiful, but it doesn't happen with a lot more. Uh, there is, yeah, there's a lot of work to do here and everywhere. Yes, we are in Mexico and yes, this is our food. And it's something that is changing, but it's really interesting, interesting to see what are the, uh, other cuisines that influence the most, uh, what is happening like, yeah. as a whole scene, as a whole gastronomic scene. Your, your question was how we met, right? <laughs> well, I think I can, yeah. can tell why you're together because like, I, I, I can only imagine like the conversations around your house must be so incredible about like, you know, the, the, like you're such a meeting of the hearts and minds and, and, and all of that uh, with it. Uh, actually, I want to ask side question because uh, 
do you cook at home for each other? Because that doesn't seem to happen for most of the married couples I know who work in restaurants. Well, because of the pandemic, we yeah. have been able to cook at home and I love it. We make very different food. Yeah, I feel like we make more in the vein of like the food that we used to cook in California that we missed. Um, and we eat a lot of quesadillas. Norman makes amazing quesadillas. Um, it's my favorite food group. Yeah. <laughs> food group. Um, yeah, but that's how we met. So we were in the Bay. We were working on, um, I mean, we would work on each other's projects. Mm -hmm. So uh, I haven't told her what I was oh, uh, doing. I haven't yeah. told them what I was doing. So I was working at different restaurants. I worked at Camino in Oakland for many years and many positions. I was obsessed with not just working in the kitchen, but getting to know every single crony of the restaurant so that I could have a better understanding of what I wanted to do when I had my own place. And in addition to that, I'm very interested in Mexican food. That is my field, my passion, what I'm better at. And I was, uh, for a long time while I was there, I was researching the food of the Californios which are the Mexicans that existed for less than 100 years in uh, Alta California, which is Northern California, Sonoma, Napa area, and just doing a very uh, diligent research on their food and their food ways. And it was fascinating. And kind of like bridging that history with art and... Yeah, that's how that's how yeah. we that's how we met. So there was like a, a people. Our dog is drinking in the background. <laughs> I mean, people have heard my dogs on this podcast. So my dogs and my radiators. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so we were both working in the industry. We were both doing a lot of food activism work, uh, and uh, like there was an event that um, Brian Terry was in resident at the. Um, Museum of African Diaspora. Yeah, and uh, he invited People's Kitchen to uh, coordinate an event there and uh, hired Norma to manage the event. And that was the first time we'd worked together. We'd met at uh, at our friend's restaurant, uh, Dominica's restaurant, uh, Cosecha, Cosecha. In, in Old Oakland. Um, that was where the first location of People's Kitchen Collective, where we do pop-ups there um, and events. Um but we got to work together with Brian Terry in that event at the Museum of Afri African Diaspora. That was really, really fun. Um, it was like seeing Norma in all her glory, uh, which is and like the way she ran shit, like such a boss and it was so thoughtful. And then, um, and then me seeing like the work of people's kitchen collective blew my mind what they were doing. And we never stopped working yeah. together after that. We did an event in Mexico City. Uh, Norma had been had moved back here, um, and we were like kind of long distance dating. And she invited me to come cook with her uh, at her friend Carla Fernandez and Pedro Reyes's house. They're both amazing artists and designers here in Mexico City. And that was the first time we cooked together as masali mice, and the first time we had more in depth conversations about these issues and realizing that we're both super food nerds, but also the <laughs> level of um, shared history between our cultures and between our respective cultures. And that it just worked. It was one of those nights where 
you know, we had never cooked together. It was always in support of each other's projects. And this day we just let loose. We went to the market and bought things and created this dishes that some of them are still with us today and was one of those moments where you're like what like wow what just happened like and we realized that there was something there and that's when obviously masala maize didn't have a name the first name that we toyed with was curcuma and maize which which means turmeric and turmeric and corn because i stained their kitchen so turmeric (laughs) Uh, to the point where, like, we kept doing dinners with them, and Carla was like, "Please, never, to, no." To we break. stained all of her like handmade plates. Not we, me, <laughs> me. I stained, I stained, literally everything with turmeric. Um, yeah, so we're not allowed to use turmeric at her house anymore. But I love it. Well, my my colleague Margaret Ebay, I think uh, two or three times she has uh, dropped like an industrial sized container on her kitchen floor, <laughs> and uh, has been, been trying to figure out how to get that up. So nope. yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't. So uh, and, and we, it's the beauty of turmeric, right? Like we 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 had no plans of opening a restaurant we know better you should never open a restaurant it's honestly always a mistake like no good comes from opening a restaurant so we didn't think we were going to open a restaurant we were like this will just be sort of like our satellite dream beautiful research project and then we evolved into naming it masale maize and then like four months later we got the offer to take this beautiful space and we had plans to go travel we were going to cook in cook in japan and he was in the u.s i was in mexico the place gets offered to me i say yes and i just call him and i was like hey you want to do this i'm just so you know i'm canceling all of my part of the travel plans i totally get it if you want to keep going and you have two weeks to the side yeah if you get like to be fair when we were offered the lease we were pretty drunk um when we decided to do this like okay let's open a restaurant and here we are oh my and uh, the thing is that you've been pretty open about what you've had to deal with sort of politically as you've been as you were opening the restaurant and it's a really intensely complicated thing i think a lot of people have dreams of opening a restaurant they think i have a great menu i have people i want to work with and and then you get down into the weeds of permits and uh, so many complicated things. And I gather that's been a real challenge in a lot of ways. Yeah. Just the way of doing business here, um, it makes it, it makes it hard, right? Like we're, there's a few things. I mean, one, not permits, I would say the bribes, like we were shut down. We first, the, the earthquake happened when we were set to open and then we turned the restaurant to community kitchen and just served 800 uh, hot meal, like free meals every day. And then uh, finally... Slowly turned from a prefix, like really affordable fonda, Mexican fonda style prefix menu. We didn't feel like the city was in an emotional state to, you know, to welcome the opening of a restaurant. And it wasn't, we were in mourning. So we're like, let's open gently and sort of like giving something to the community. So it was like a simple, it was a menu that changed every day that kicked our asses because we had to keep costs really low and then slowly 
sort of start adding dishes until we got to a full yeah. uh, so we menu. We finally hit our stride. We're feeling good. And then someone comes and asks, uh, demands a bribe. So this we is a, the bribe. So this is a moment you have to understand where there is going to be elections and the offices are going to change. And what that means that the, the people in all of the governmental uh, jobs, it's going to switch. So what are they doing? Everybody's trying to get the last uh, money that they can before, you know, they switch jobs. And, and specifically people who have, who hold like these positions that have power. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, someone, we did, we refused to bribe. We're very So they approach us, they came and did, uh, they check something and they find something that wasn't, there's actually on the paper that they give you, there is no reason why they shut us down. There's, yeah. just, there's no reason, but they did. And once <laughs> they shut you down, you, you, we, you, you get into what I call the mud of uh, Mexican bureaucracy. And it is so hard to get out of it. Yeah. It's almost impossible if you don't have connections or if or you don't pay a bribe. And for me, as a Mexican, coming back to my country, one of the reasons why I wanted to come back after 18 years, it's because I kept hearing horror stories of this and that. And I wanted to do what I can to change the, like, the systems of, of, of oppression implemented by all of this. Um, government, you know, and I was like, I can't critique, I can't do anything until or unless I am there working towards change. And working towards change for us means not paying a bribe one, and one standing things, yeah. and standing publicly and saying like we're not going to pay a bribe. So, so we were shut down for six months, um, oh. <laughs> and and that was six months. This is pre-pandemic this is now two years ago but that was six months of still payroll of still paying rent of still paying our purveyors and just hustling but with our restaurant clothes like we literally could not enter the building um so and then we were we reopened uh slowly we hit our stride again then we had to move and we moved into a new location and then, <laughs> yeah improvise again and then the pandemic happens We've reopened Masaling Mais four times. Four times. You do you feel cursed? Do you feel what is this feeling like? How do you keep emotionally, uh, you know, pursuing the dream? It seems like I said it's dumb. Like why would you open a restaurant? But well, it's, because it's it's become the dream. It's it's not just us. We are a family, you know. And when you're a family you look after your family and we, we are, we have our team that it's our family. And, and their respective families. And we have our farmers and we have our purveyors and it's a, it's a whole thing. So we can't, we can't break, right? Like we have to keep going. We have to stay stubborn with it, but it's also going back to this, our goal of what the restaurant was, right? It was never to open a traditional restaurant. It was always looking at how could our restaurant be, kind of a tool for creating social change? How could our restaurant be an activist project? How could we, um, you know, to use that term again, decolonize how restaurants can work and create kind of the, our best vision of what our industry could be? And part of that means that we have to stick by our values 
over everything, right? During the pandemic, this has really pushed us because, you know, we were the first restaurant to close here in the city and we haven't reopened yet because the, the cases just don't, it's too high, it's too dangerous. The risk is too high to our staff, to their families. And we felt that we were somehow prepared because we learned what we learned from the first closing of Masala y Maiz is that a restaurant should always be prepared, should have savings for whatever it is that could happen. So we had savings for six months, but then those six months run at course and here we are, you know, and it's how do we, like you were saying, in this pandemic, keep those values going what is it that we're gonna that we're gonna do yeah. that we're gonna keep doing and how do we sustain that like how do we maintain quality of life for our staff how do we maintain like practices of self-care of rest, of valuing um like family time we're not open one of the reasons we don't open for dinner is because we want our staff to be like everyone to be home in time for dinner with their families right we only do lunch and we know we'd make more money during dinner but what's the point of working till three in the morning or two in the morning? Like Norma and I came up and I, I miss cooking at night, but I don't miss the toll that it takes on, on the rest of your life. It's, it's, and people are conditioned in this very Eurocentric restaurant model to that it's somehow a badge of honor. And actually I want to wind back for a sec to, you talked about uh, family and I, and I would like a little bit more to unpack how you all use it because it is something that is used as sort of a, a cudgel and a like tool of oppression in, in so many restaurants in the States because like, Oh, it's family, it's family. And it's like at the same time, like it's, but it's used to sort of keep people in this abusive model because they're right. told family, but they're not actually treated in that particular uh, way. And I would like, you know, for folks listening to have sort of a better guide about what that means what that could look like and how you two do it. Yeah, I'm so glad that you made that point because family is, like you said, used as a, as a cultural, like it's very much used as an abusive tactic, right? Like mm -hmm. to you have to, you know, we're family. That means you have to, you know, cover my ass or work late or we're family, so I'm not going to pay you on time or I'm going to stiff you on your tips or whatever. Like it's definitely used as very manipulative and emotionally abusive and, and physically abusive tactic, I feel like in restaurant industry traditionally. Um, I think in, in the the way for me that we're using it um, is more this is ugh, is this idea of like how do we look out for each other and this idea of how do we know how do we put the well being of the whole team uh, like central to the decision making process of how we run the restaurant. So this idea of the restaurant can only be healthy if everyone on our staff is able to be healthy. They can only be healthy if their families are healthy and taken care of. Their families can only be healthy and taken care of if the community that we're part of is healthy and taken care of, right? So kind of looking at the, uh, not so much of how we work day to day, but how do we exist together in community and how do we caretake each other? So trying to, I guess, uh, family and restaurants is, that term is so loaded, like you said, but trying to think of what collective well-being um, would look like. And now is a time to be looking at that as well, because we, so we were talking before we started recording about this is an inflection point for, uh, well, for the, you know, entire world, but in particular for, uh, for restaurants, because there is this pause during which things can 
potentially fundamentally change. And this is going to be the only time, hopefully, in our in our lives where you know everything is just kind of on on pause. And while it has led to such tremendous horrifying devastation, it is a chance to rebuild or rethink or re something because it clearly was not working. This model was just so exploitative for so many people. So I want to you know, sort of talk about measures that you've you've taken to stop and, and rethink how this could all look during this time. Yeah, well the thing the the one of the things that we looked at first was um how uh how how do you say how a la deriva how left uh restaurant workers were all of a sudden without work mm -hmm. there is no in Mexico in particular there is no unemployment um and by law we pay the uh the public health insurance through the restaurant and it was well we can't close because then everybody will be out of work, which means out of money, and there is no government support for that. But also they would be out of health insurance in a pandemic. So that is not an option. And in looking at this systemic change, we know we are a small restaurant in the in a world literally of restaurants and in a system that it's completely broken. So how and what can we do? And we saw it in terms also of masala y maiz. Masala y maiz, we have investors and we can't really change that model because they signed into something, right? So what we what we come up with was to do a side business that it's a food co-op and where the uh, where the uh, the team at Masala Maiz are the co-owners of the co-op with us. What we saw is that the businesses that were thriving were grocery stores because people were cooking more at home. And and I think this is something that it's not going to change, and and that it's a good thing that yeah. people cook more at home, that they they pay more attention to their products. So it was this food cop. It's a way uh, for us to 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 propose a change in the industry. Yes, you might not be able to change exactly how your restaurant operates, but you can have an arm. Uh, to your business that works completely different and that it's focused on the rights of your workers, that it's a business by and for uh, the workers. So one of the things, uh, like Norma's saying, right, that we go, the pandemic happens and we see like these, these fissures in our industry become massive cracks. Um, and the cracks are, and what we see is that you know, of course, like there, I mean, in the U.S., there's small business loans, there's support for uh, business owners, but there's no meaningful support for workers, right? And we have, uh, once again, the workers left out in, in the cold, right? There's no, um, so we see this lack of food security, we see a lack of labor security, and we see a lack of job, of, of health security. So what our response to that was um, we opened this worker-owned grocery store co-op. So all of the staff and workers that are involved, all the team of Masale Maiz 
are co-owners in this arm of the restaurant that's now its own standalone business called Supercope that's focused on the health and well-being of the food chain. So all the farmers that we're involved with are now selling their goods at the at the co-op, our regular producers, and then our staff um, are all co-owners. So they're able to get a second income that's much more stable than the restaurant during a pandemic from the grocery store. We know that restaurants um, are really uh, frail and that any, especially in Mexico City, we have earthquakes, we have pandemics, some shit happens every six months uh, that put all of our jobs and you know, all of our work in jeopardy, but the grocery stores continue on. So the COPE, the Super COPE, this, uh, the worker and co-op grocery store that we opened, is um, basically is this platform for not only our staff, but other people involved in the restaurant to sell their goods. During the pandemic, we saw how many um, cooks and food producers were suddenly out of work who started creating their own small shelf-stable products to sell. And now we offer shelf space for them to sell it through the grocery store. And other restaurants. Yeah. Mercedes uh, Bernal, who is the chef, one of the chef owners at Meroma, is one of our co-founders. And somebody uh, from her restaurant, it's also a partner, yeah. associate of the co-op. So we're, we're trying to do this as a proof of concept, right? Our, our hope is that... I mean, our, our our dream is what if like every restaurant that we open, right, or that anyone opened always had, if your restaurant itself isn't going to be a worker-owned cooperative, what if it, an arm of it was worker-owned? And it could be a creamery, like it doesn't have to be a grocery shop. A farm, any It could be a farm. It could even be a line of products or a baked good that it's sold, but that the profits of that specific product or business are are shared equally with uh, yeah. the people who are part of that. Uh, so in function, in the way it works is, you know, of course, so uh, the staff are co-owners, everyone that works in the food chain in some form, like from farming to deliveries, deliveries to trash collection and composting and recycling, uh, everyone gets a discounted membership to the co-op, gets access to the same quality of ingredients that we're selling at the restaurant, the organic free range, all of that stuff um, at a discounted rate. Um, and we get to practice this idea of what uh, worker ownership in Mexico looks like. Our, our dream is if all food businesses had a worker-owned component, well, like what we're doing with this is that instead of spending money outside of the business, we're buying back from our workers. So the co-op becomes a producer for the restaurant and the restaurant becomes a producer for the cooperative. So they, uh, the co-op makes some of the base uh, uh, achars, pickles, some uh, production in, their, in the production kitchen and sells it to the restaurant. The restaurant makes... Donuts. Uh, donuts and uh, stuff to sell to the co-op and on uh, products. And basically this money that's generated gets uh, goes back to the workers in a lot of different ways. Right. So you've made an ecosystem essentially. That's what the hope is. Um, we're about to open a new restaurant called Marigold um, attached to the co-op. And that's going to be, once that opens, that'll be the full like proof of concept of this relationship of an, a restaurant and worker owned co-op attached together working simultaneously to reduce food co food costs, to reduce food waste, to create um, a different like kind of labor environment 
that building that that we're opening this in is kind of going to become a food justice center with a worker library and a research space and the this production kitchen um and of course the co-op grocery store and then this uh restaurant and a chef residency spot and we're also you're forgetting the wine we also oh. <laughs> Silvana Pijuan who's an incredible winemaker dancer turned winemaker in Valle de Guadalupe in Baja and She's so talented. She makes natural wines, and we joined forces with her to create a co-op wine. She made it, and it is also wine that we will be sold in the model of a co-op. Yeah, that's made as a cooperative project. I'll be sold as a cooperative project, and again, like it's another way of putting more money into the hands of the workers involved in our in our now restaurant group. And you, you had mentioned before uh, we started recording that you had brought in somebody who was sort of helping out with the cultural aspect of this or the sort of the, the care part of it. Right. Uh, Absolutely. And that's, I think, the most important thing to come out of this pandemic is like us, uh, for us, at least like uh, the the opportunity to stop and reevaluate how we were working and see like where we could grow. And one of that was investing more time and energy into the development of our staff and the development of ourselves as leaders. So um, we have the privilege of working with... Uh, Yamilet Melo. Uh, she has worked in, you know, some of the best restaurants in, in the world, the world uh, doing service. She has been uh, studying herself to do and implement uh, changes to the to the industry and and so basically like she's created this collective leadership model for restaurants methodology, uh, methodology yeah uh for food businesses and restaurants where she creates this personal development plan for everyone on the staff through a series of one-on-ones through a series of group trainings and from i mean literally everyone involved working at the restaurant including ourselves um uh, and she's taking this leadership model and combining it with our the theory of change that we have for Masale Mais and our like mission and value statement and kind of creating this, I would call it like a decolonizing collective leadership model. Um, and for us, it was, um, we real, realized and we hope that we won't have this opportunity to stop and and have like this, this time to reflect and to put in. And I say, I don't think, I, I hope it doesn't happen again because I just, I hope we don't have another pandemic or we don't get shut down again. But what she's doing is helping us look inside. And what we have done at Masale Maiz is like, take this time to grow internally, collectively, but individually. Like, Sakib was saying she's working with every single member of the team and also reminding us how to take care of ourselves, how to breathe. Like a lot of times, you know, you come into the restaurant, if something happened the day before that, you know, put us all down, like we hit our lowest um, sales. We sold uh, one donut one day. One day. <laughs> Just one donut. And you can imagine what that does morally to a team, right? Yeah. And, you know, coming the next day and doing exercises, physical exercises that address that pain in our bodies and our souls 
and how we can get out of it, you know, how to get out of that funk and how to keep showing up to work and also taking care of yourself. And I want to make really clear, um, because I know you have a lot of industry people that listen to this, like that type of work, um, this type of investment into our personnel, into our team, um, is not just the good and well-being of our staff and ourselves and kind of the labor environment, but it really is for the good of the business, right? The better quality of life that our staff has, the better the, they work, the better the business does. The better quality of, uh, like the better labor environment we're able to have, the better the business will do. The less turnover we have, the more commitment people have, and the more understanding they have of the way we want to work. Kind of what Yami is doing is taking our mission and values, our theory of change, and uh, spreading it into every aspect of the restaurant and making sure everyone has an understanding of it, but also like a control and command over the functionality of what these concepts are, right? I'm feeling like this weekend I'm going to make the mole and use that as a meditation. And because, you know, I'm trying to involve some of these practices into to my life and try to breathe and meditate. And I think I uh, yelled at you both to go to sleep last night. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it was having a very bad allergy attack and had taken uh, medication. And I went to bed earlier than usual. And I woke up today feeling, you know, a lot more refreshed. And it was it was just a really important and rare self-care moment on, on my behalf. Uh, what is what is the thing that you two do this is so much on your shoulders and you know and while you're you're doing all of this for uh your team i know there's a lot of like sort of physician heal thyself kind of thing because it's it's easy to sort of implement these or not easy it's actually very hard to implement these things but to do it for yourself are you are you finding time to do that are you prioritizing your your sleep your your breathing your and do you remind each other to do that uh, well, uh. Yamilet <laughs> is helping us do that right now because for for me, I am just, uh, you know, like I am the kind of person or the old me was the kind of person that would work for a month straight on the hotline with no, no rest, days no, no rest. days off yep. and just, just because I had to and we're stopping for moments and finding like joy, for example, and always having flowers at the house. Oh, like, I love that. Yeah, and always having uh, flowers at the restaurant. It's really important for, even when we're not for, open. for me. Even right now that we're doing to go, like having flowers, fresh flowers in the bathroom and in the main room, it just, it's an act of love for us. You know, that I think oftentimes in the industry, in restaurants, it's everything that we do for the people that come to visit us. But what are the things that we do for us? And yeah, one could say like, you should cost, you should cut that cost, you know? And I understand that from an economic money perspective, but what does that do to to me when I walk into the restaurant, to our team when they look up and there's flowers, you know? And it's like those little details. Um, We are, for example, both of us making an effort to have breakfast. That is something that we never did. We have a really bad habit of drinking coffee and just leaving and realize Mm -hmm. that, you know, breakfast makes a huge difference in how we approach the rest of our days. 
the last thing that I did when I was at uh, my previous job at Extra Crispy was at uh, named People's Kitchen Collective as Breakfast Chefs of the Year. Or I think yeah. it was in 2018. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. And that is something that we now it's require at the restaurants. We cook breakfast every day. In addition to uh, lunch or the regular staff meal, we make sure that there is breakfast for everyone. Yeah every day that there's like a coffee bar set up and then breakfast staff meal and then lunch staff meal uh, and then snacks throughout the day. Um, I don't know. I, I don't, I feel like during the pandemic, I've slowly been decaying. Uh, we've been working really hard. Like the, the, the dreaming has definitely given us purpose. And like this idea, like in the beginning, it was building and creating the work around cooperative and kind of creating the model around it that was keeping uh keeping us going the dreaming of what like how we were going to survive and it felt very hopeful in the beginning like it felt like such an opportunity and now we're in this round two or three of this pandemic and now it just feels like fuck we need to survive it's been feeling really lonely um there's no we haven't received any support from the mexican government uh, the weight of the responsibility of having so many employees and staff the uh, penny pinching and literally like counting pesos to see if we're going to make payroll and be able to make rent and how we're going to survive for one more week or another month um, has been really hard. Um, but so once again, dreaming is what keeps us going. Uh, not a couple of weeks ago, we did a pay what you can, which we it started as a, an idea that we had and we felt like as industry, sometimes we ask too much and we don't give enough. So we're like, let's just do this because the team needs it. We need it. We need to bring joy back. And it was for me, it was after I had a moment early um, in January where I surrendered and that to me has been um, crucial in how my perspective changed. Yeah. I surrendered to the pandemic. I surrendered to the economic crisis and I surrendered control mm -hmm. and decided that we're, we were just going to try to coast it and we're going to do our best and we're going to keep working, but we're not going to be going against the current anymore. Yeah. Like we're just going to like, Oh, this is where we're going. Okay adapt to that and flow. And this is what's happening. Oh, adapt to that and flow. We are, uh, you know, we have a sort of like a fast food-ish uh, menu. We're to basically go. just a fried chicken and donut and, spot now, but it's, you know. That's exactly what I want to eat right now. Yeah, that's what ever. That's apparently the only thing people order right now. I was so. like, I was adamant at the beginning. It was like, no, people, people need their vegetables. And, you know, like the idea of like what we need. And it failed. It completely, we've had so many failures yeah. <laughs> during this pandemic. And my healthy-ish menu failed. And like then our imaginative Indian, Mexican dishes. Nobody wants no, nobody wants our food. They just want fried chicken and donuts. So that's and, what we're selling. Yeah. Or, or, and further than that, tacos and yeah. tortas and like easy comfort food. And and also realizing it as and, and looking at it as a strict business strategy, it's a lot better because yeah. we have led less food waste, you know, we have less food costs. It's super hyper focused on very few ingredients and it seems to be 
working, but we're going to have to change it soon because yeah. <laughs> we're going to open a terrace. We well, got gonna... we get permission to open a terrace and, you know, we have this idea. We're going to keep the, the to-go menu, but we're going to do uh, sort of like a Mexican-focused, barbecue for the grilled time being. for yeah. the time being and see what happens but it's like this idea of just like surrendering adapting going surrender yeah. adapt go and going back to this uh pay what you can it was like this moment of we just want to cook you know we are cooks and what we like to cook what we like to do is feed people that is what fills our hearts and we haven't done that in so long so I think like what one of the things that's been keeping us going uh, through this like process of surrendering and adapting and reinventing ourselves, like Norma's saying, is this. Um, and what I'm proud of us for is this uh, this act of radical imagination, right? So this idea of how do we imagine ourselves outside of the confines that we're used to? How do we practice radical imagination? How do we kind of dream? bigger than we've been allowed ourselves to dream before and think about how this restaurant can exist outside of its traditional models that we've come used to and constantly pushing ourselves to think about our situation in different ways and really look at like what are the root causes of the issues that we're experiencing and how do we create kind of changes internally but also externally that address those root causes and get to the goals that we want one of those ways was has been like implementing a pay what you can menu and service um, has been implementing like the uh, paid rested like days off things like that that make and, and prioritizing rest for ourselves and for our staff um, and kind of uh, changing the way we work as best we can while surviving like we're we're not we we've surrendered to the restaurant is not making money right now if we can just keep maintain our staff if we can just maintain like the bare minimum pay rent and just get through this um we don't have anything less to lose like we're already losing we're already hemorrhaging every day so it's just trying to eke by and use this time to try out different models to try out new ways of working and to try out kind of how can we better care for ourselves and prepare ourselves for the future and yeah and being radical about, you know, just not being, having no fear. And, you know, the pay what you can model might seem like whatever common in the US. And we didn't realize how, what a shock it was going to be until we put the first uh, sort of like set of posts out in the, in our social media. And people in Mexico City were confused. And then it dawned on me, it was like, ah, yeah, this is completely against what we are taught in Mexico City. You know, Mexico City, once when you leave here and you commit to leave here, when you're not just passing through, it's not an easy city. It's a place where you are taught not to trust, where you are taught to always like, sort of like get ahead and that it's what you have to do to survive. And all of a sudden there's this people telling you, putting kind of like changing that power dynamic. And it's like, you pay what you can. And it's like, what, what do you mean? We don't understand how does it work, but what do you get out of it? Like you so many questions and it, questions. And it was 
fascinating and it was really beautiful and it worked and I can tell you that for me it was one of the most beautiful days of Masale Maiz we were so busy it reminded us of uh, a busy busy service at the restaurant where everybody's just like coming and taking or like we had orders since 8 a.m and we sold out at 7 30 p.m like half an hour before we usually um close and it was beautiful like the people that were just coming they really understood how to do it people were bringing gifts to the staff and saying like hey i can't pay this but i brought kombuchas for everyone somebody did a drawing of us Um, and then a lot of people who don't have the money and have been wanting to eat at masala maiz showed up and said like i want to do this and but there were so many questions from people like and friends, scared friends texting us like you're crazy, you're <laughs> so much money, people are gonna abuse it and they're gonna you know, and we're like, Well So so I mean what what how could this situation get worse, right? So not <laughs> I love oh my god, I, I love this so much and I, I just this is what I really, really wanted people to hear your voices because you know, we we talk you know, internally about the two of you and what you're doing and the ways forward from all of this. And the two of you keep coming up in our conversations because I really truly believe that people are going to see, you know, the, the proof of concept of what you do and how you conduct your, your, your lives and your businesses and all that and, and see a way forward. And my hope is just that you both are, you know, get, get some rest at uh, some point in, in the near future because um, you're a treasure and we need to keep you safe. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Kat. Thank you. Thank you for every bit of this this conversation. Um, and if folks want to find you on social or whatever, where can they where can they do that? Um, I'd say the best is uh, on Instagram, where Norma runs the show and contact with everybody. It's uh, at Masala Imais, um, and then our website masalaimais.com. Uh, email would be hola at masalaimais.com. Um, but yeah, yeah but if you us. send us a private uh, no. message on Instagram, I will answer it. Yeah, I will make up. I answer every single one of our messages. Um, yeah, but and if you know one day when this pandemic's over, please come visit us. I promise we'll have more food than just fried chicken and donuts <laughs> on the menu. Um, yeah, and and I would hope, like in this conversation, a takeaway would be like in times of crisis to push ourselves to be more generous, to be more focused on community, to be more focused on, on our team and our workers and to kind of imagine that that's the future where like that, that level of abundance of care is where we're going to survive as an industry and to kind of, and to focus on that. And to dream bigger. Yeah. Because of this pandemic makes us feel really small and really frail and fragile and this act of imagining something, a situation where we don't feel like that is re- has been really helpful for us. Oh, thank you both so, so much for all of this. Thank you so much to Norma and Saqib. I could listen to them for hours and hours. And if you hear that and you don't want to immediately... <laughs> have some masa, make some some tortillas, and make that malaverde. Like I, I can't help you. <laughs> and I really, 
you know, I, I know we're all trying to figure out what is, is coming next. And I have to say, I, I've been following what they've been doing at, uh, at the restaurant and their whole movement for a long time. And I really think that the whole industry will be in such a healthier place coming out of this if we listen to absolute visionaries like the two of them. So thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you for listening to this podcast. Uh, it is a labor of love for a bunch of us here. Antara Sinha is just an incredible producer. Sarah Crowder gets us the images that we use on the site and we are just championed by the rest of the team and we really like doing it and we'd like to continue doing it. So you know what helps with that is if you, wherever you're listening to your podcasts, if you would like and subscribe and share and leave comments and all of that, it helps with that algorithm and it helps people find us and lets us keep on doing this show that we really enjoy doing and getting to highlight um, incredible voices like Norma and Saqib who are building the future that I personally want to live in. It is part of Food & Wine Pro where it's Food & Wine Pro is a, a it's I think of it as Harry Potter's room of requirement where it, it is so many different things. It is a section on the website where we cover stories that have to do with the industry and the people in it. It is the Food & Wine Pro newsletter that you can subscribe to on the page foodandwine.com slash fwpro where we, with the help of the marvelous Oset Babur, put together all of the news you need to know uh, for this week along with some words of wisdom from our editor-in-chief Hunter Lewis and also the latest edition of the podcast and a uh, well I'll get to this in a second but it's a really good thing please subscribe to it um, we enjoy putting it together and it uh, you know we take some work out of your out of your way by getting together all those links together so again foodandwine.com slash fwpro for that and if there's somebody who you would like to hear us talk to you want to hear uh you know, you want to let us know, let all the, let the people know what a great job they're doing or how interesting their brain is. We are pretty easy to find. I am Kitten with Whip on Twitter or cat.kinsman at foodandwine.com. And let me know. I only know what I know. Tell me things, please. And uh, we will check them out. Um, I hope you're, you know, this is a really rough time for everyone. And, you know, I keep thinking about what Norma was saying about just succumbing to it, let what happens happens, and everybody's got their, their different ways. We are all so tired and burnt out right now, and especially all of you who work in restaurants or anywhere in the food industry, this is an incredibly tough time, and my heart goes out to you, and you know, and I really hope that you are uh, taking some good, kind care of yourself, and to help with that, I'm going to give Kelsey Youngman the last word here uh, in the newsletter. She shares every week the mantra that uh, she comes up with for our weekly uh, food and wine full team meetings. And I'm going to let Kelsey have the last word. Take good care of yourself until the next time. Hello there. It's Kelsey, the associate food editor. I'm back with another mantra. Free falling. I've been thinking a lot about falling and failing lately, how important it is to do both regularly, and how terrifying that can even be to contemplate. While walking in the woods this past weekend, all bundled up from head to toe and covered with my mask, I carefully watched each footfall on the uneven, rocky terrain 
covered in slippery dead leaves. I was devoted to the task of staying upright. When suddenly a picture I recently found of my younger self came to mind. I was eight or nine years old, smiling at the top of a rock climbing wall covered in band-aids. As an adult who's kind of afraid of even stepstool level heights, I was taken aback at my younger self. But the memory of it had me looking up a bit more, remembering I could wear a few band-aids at the cost of seeing more sky and the trees around me. The cost of falling was one I could pay. I encourage you to try to fail at something this week, something safe enough, a new private creative project or game. Practice falling and failing there and see where the bravery you build up takes you everywhere else.